Okay, we're going to open our Bibles with that <laughs> to Matthew chapter 15. We're continuing to move through the book of Matthew. Closer to his heart is the title of our message today. What a wonderful time of worship we had together. Amen. Feel closer to his heart just spending time sitting and reflecting on his majesty and glory. So what we're going to do, if uh, you're able to stand one more time, we are going to actually tackle the first 20 verses of Matthew 15. So why don't you open up there, if you would, Matthew 15. I'm going to read the first nine verses just to open us. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, five, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You can have a seat. Well, Lord, this is a powerful section, and it speaks to a lot of things that we encounter in our lives. Uh, man is, it's been said, is irredeemably religious, and the ancient world was filled with idolatry and try, ways to try to appease the gods and goddesses, that is the false gods and goddesses. And, and we know that um, there, there's a draw in our flesh to check off a list and um, do what we need to do to earn our way. But Lord, we know that the law shows us that we've all failed and Jesus came to pay our ransom and to show us the way. And we collectively, Lord, I, I think I could speak for everyone who I know here. We want to be closer to your heart. We want to have a heart like yours. That's really the goal of the Christian life. Once we're born again, which is a free gift, we, our whole pursuit is to become more like Jesus. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit as we yield to your power. Lord, in 2024, we have a brand new year ahead of us. And if we were to have one goal, it would be to be more like you, closer to our King's heart. So we want to lay this time at your feet. Pray that you would be pleased with the way we teach the text and also in our response as your people to hear what the Spirit would say to your church and to have our hearts conformed more into yours, I pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So... Happy New Year, and uh, just a quick update. We've been telling you a little bit about property stuff. So we sold our property at Lincoln and Ontario. The money actually is in our bank. We had an interesting thing occur. Uh, it's, it's not in my personal bank. That was my request, uh, <laughs> but it didn't happen. It's in the Bank of Living Truth. But um, we had an interesting thing happen. We were working with the escrow company in First American Title, and they had a cyber attack right as the transaction was going on, which is a three and a half million dollar transaction. Uh, and so we were praying <laughs> a little harder, like, oh Lord. <laughs> In the end, um, it did close a few days ago. And so we're grateful. You guys know that we've been working on the property in Norco. And we, are, uh, we have moved down the road. We've met again with the city. We, uh, it's looking good. The goal is to close on that property in March, about the middle of March. And then we're going to just see what the timing is and what, what it looks like. But we'll use it as a supplemental property for the immediate future. And then we're going to just see what happens. It's a really cool five acre, uh, basically like a ranch or a farm. It has uh, two houses and a barn on it. So there's some use that we can have with a little cleanup in the uh, short near future. We may do some outreaches, some breakfast, Bible studies, whatever we end up doing. Uh, but we'll eventually our hope and prayer is to build a campus there. It's going to take 
a, a lot of money. Building is not cheap, and uh, it's, it's going to be some time. So I'm just updating you on that. We're just trusting the Lord with all those details. So uh, just, that's just an FYI. Closer to his heart is the title. As I was thinking about the title, I was thinking about David, and, and we know that of all the people we could talk about uh, in the Bible, and, and there's probably more than David, but David is singled out as a man after, remember, God's own heart. When Paul's preaching at Pisidian Antioch in the book of Acts, this is Acts 13, 22, he said these words. After he had removed Saul, God removed King Saul, he raised up David, Acts 13, 22, to be their king, concerning whom he, God, testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Now, I know that's not new to any of you, but I want you to see one further component of this, and this may clarify what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. It says, who will do what? All my will. Now, we've learned as we've studied the Bible that the goal of our sanctification after we get saved, after we're born again, justified, the goal of our sanctification is to be more like Jesus, to be conformed into his image. That's Romans 8, 29. Paul said in Galatians 4, 19, I am laboring among you until Christ is formed in you. So the goal of the Christian life is to have the heart or a heart like our king. And of course, that takes some work, right? I mean, uh, when we're just living in the world, when we don't know God, we don't know his ways, we can be, you know, it seems like a million miles away. But the, once we're born again and once the Holy Spirit lives in us and we begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we begin to see what God wants. We begin to pray, not my will, but yours be done. We begin to have, you could say, a kingdom perspective. In 1 Timothy 1.15, if you're taking notes, Paul said, the goal of our instruction as we teach others, he wrote to Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Found a list of things from the heart that Warren Wearsby put in his commentary you might find helpful. I'll try to go a little slower. We believe in the heart, Romans 10, 9, and 10. We love from the heart, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. We sing from the heart, Colossians three sixteen. We obey from the heart, Ephesians 6, 6. We give from the heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. The Bible uh, moves from the inside out, not the outside in. Man's religion is concerned about the externals. God is concerned about the internals. God does not look on the outward. He looks where? At the heart. And he said that when he was talking about choosing David to rule the nation. As God placed a king, he wanted that king to have his heart. But it seems like the goal of the pharisaical instruction of the day was something completely different. It wasn't drawing closer to God's heart. It was rule-keeping. It was man's religious rule-keeping. And it brought burdens on the people. In Matthew 11, we've been through this before. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know the burdens that they've put you under. They've added all kinds of tradition and rabbinic teaching to the word of God and, and so much so that the people of that day barely knew maybe even the difference. In fact, there's some records of rabbis saying that the tradition of the rabbis or the elders was superior to the law. As crazy as that is, but some of you grew up in systems where that's what you were confronted with. Basically, you didn't know the difference between the teaching of a church and the actual word of God. It got convoluted and this, is, this was a big reason for the Reformation, was the Roman Catholicism of the day, the papacy, the papal, papal structure, or the popes, uh, dominated the people, and people were dissuaded from reading the Bible for themselves. So this text is going to get to the heart of the matter. We're going to see, of course, Jesus, who is God, uh, tell us what really matters to God. Let me just give you one more upfront scripture, Colossians 2 20 through 23, Paul writing, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, 
Colossians 2.20. Why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value. They provide no help against fleshly indulgence or against restraining the flesh, Colossians 2, 20 through 23. In church history, there are stories of church fathers sincere who in trying to uh, crucify the flesh would do very extreme things. One story I recall is a, one of the fathers in early Christianity, whenever he felt lust, would uh, dive into a thorn bush to uh, bring his flesh under control. Uh, I don't think that's a great idea, personally. <laughs> but, but you can imagine, oh, oh no, I'm feeling tempted. Ah, into the thorn bush. Now you have a bunch of other problems, right? But this is the extreme measure that they would go, and you could can kind of tip your hat. Well, I appreciate the guy's passion, but there's got to be another way, right? And man's religion says if you keep these certain rules, if you show up on this day, if you fast on these days, if you dress the right way, wear the right tie, you know, have the right menu, then you're right with God. And this was the dominant teaching uh, in Jesus' time. In fact, it had become, there had been so many rules added that people could even, not even barely move on the Sabbath day. If you go to Israel today, they have Sabbath elevators. That Sabbath elevator will stop at each floor so that you don't have to press the button because that's considered doing work. And if you ever really want to annoy someone, press every button on an elevator. Just say, I'm just saving you from breaking the Sabbath, man. <laughs> All right, as we move through the text, uh, I'm gonna give you a little outline, but I wanna just say one more thing about man's traditions. Spurgeon said, because traditions are made up by man, they can be followed by man without the need of the Holy Spirit, close quote. They could be pursued in the flesh. Let me qualify though, and I wanna say this up front so that you don't misunderstand me. Not all tradition is bad. In fact, we have traditions here at Living Truth. Certain ways that we structure a worship service. Um, usually I will ask you to stand when we read the Word of God. I can't point to a Bible verse per se, but it is a way to honor the Word of God. We have a Christmas Eve service most years. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because we want to celebrate the birth of Christ. So here's a good way to measure the value of man's tradition. Does the tradition enthrone the word of God, uplift the word of God, clarify the word of God, celebrate the gospel? Or does the tradition dethrone the word of God or cloud the gospel? So everywhere you're going to find tradition in families, in churches, in evangelical churches, but the question is, does that tradition get elevated to the point where now it's on par with the gospel or somehow it clouds or muddies the gospel or you almost think that you gotta do that thing to be in right standing with God? Here's the outline. Verses one and two, if you're taking notes, the approach of the religionists or the scribes and Pharisees. Verses three through nine, we'll look at Jesus' response to them. And verses 10 through 20, we'll hear Jesus' teaching as it relates to this topic. Let's look at the approach, verses 1 and 2, of the scribes and Pharisees. Some Pharisees, Matthew 15, 1, and scribes came to Jesus, notice, from Jerusalem, saying. Mark 7, 1, a parallel account says, the Pharisees and the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him, so almost like in a confrontational manner, when they had come from Jerusalem. Now, when you read commentaries on this, they'll say that this group was probably an official investigative committee. They may have been from the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council of Israel in that day, 70 or 71 individual scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Or 
if they didn't represent the, uh, if they didn't, if they weren't from the Sanhedrin, they were certainly representatives with, you could call it ecclesiastical authority. So they came, the big guns now from the religious center of the nation, from Jerusalem, and here they come, and they're going to confront this Galilean preacher. It may well be that so far, most of the confrontations between Jesus and religious leaders have been local, like the leaders up in Galilee, now they called for help down to the religious center, right? They got on the bat phone, come and help us. This preacher's everywhere. He's apparently healing people. His teaching is spreading all around. And what do we do? And so they came. They traveled up to the northern parts of uh, Israel and they confronted Jesus and they wanted to obviously put him in his place. Here's their question. It's verse two. Why do your disciples transgress? Notice that's a strong word. Transgress the what? Tradition of the elders. Now, if you had one question that you could ask Jesus, let's say that you were given an opportunity to rewind the clock. You're living in Israel. It's the first century. It's the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you had one question. Would your one question be, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Or would you say something like this? Who are you and how can I learn to follow you? Would you ask some fundamental big question about the meaning of life since he seems to have all this power? He just, at the end of chapter 14, David taught us people were just touching the fringe of his garment and being made well. How do you have this power? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Help us understand. But they were not teachable. Oh, just the opposite. They asked him why his disciples didn't do a ceremonial hand washing. We'll get into this in a second. But I will tell you this. As far as generally speaking, hand washing is not a bad thing. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Wash your hands. You all know that your parents told you that when you were growing up. My mother told me that. Did you wash your hands? And it was about 50-50 in Michael's uh, upbringing, right? And you have to go back into the bathroom and wash your hands. A hand washing went to a weird place in 2020, didn't it? <laughs> Am I clean? Am I clean? We all spent a little, probably too much time at the sink with dry hands, right? Nothing wrong with hand washing. I, I will use a not so godly example from the Seinfeld show. <laughs> now, this is an old TV show back in the day, like in the 80s. It was really a show about nothing. But Jerry is in the bathroom, and he's, he's on a date with this girl at an Italian restaurant. Her dad owns the restaurant. And he's in the restroom, and the dad walks in, and so they both use the restroom and Jerry's washing his hands and the dad comes out and he says, I'm going to cook a very special dinner for you and my daughter. And he fixes his hair and he doesn't wash his hands and he goes into the kitchen and Jerry's like. <gasps> and then they, the dad comes and serves the meal. This is my special meal I made especially for you. Jerry was having a tough time eating that meal. Washing your hands, generally speaking, is a really good thing. Amen? I know a lot of you who cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible, but you, but you know, you believe it. Anyway, it's a tradition. Shane was over at our house, and he told me that uh, his little daughter, Melody, called mom uh, her or she. And when the boys were growing up, I used to, they would say, uh, she's cooking dinner or her. And I'd say, don't call her she or her. That's your mother. Call her mom. Well, Shane said he said it to his own daughter. And he said, oh, no. It's happening. I am morphing into my father. And I said, that's a glorious thing. What are you talking about? There's more to come, son. More to come. I remember growing up, the mom and parents and grandparents would say, shut the door. Their air conditioning's on. Shut the door. And you're like, geez, when are they going to get over it? But now that I'm paying the bill, what do I say? Shut the door. Come in or stay out. Make up your mind. <laughs> 
Tradition. <laughs> but the question they ask is so revealing, isn't it? Why are your disciples breaking, transgressing the tradition of the elders? What's that? That was all this rabbinic teaching of the rabbis for several hundred years, finally cataloged in a book called the Mishnah. Some of you have heard that before. The Mishnah was oral traditions around the time of Jesus and before, finally written down about 200 AD, if you're curious. And it's a whole book of rules as it relates to the teaching of rabbis. So this would be kind of like, uh, you could say, pastoral commentary on life and what to do. But in this case, it, it was coming from their teachers, the rabbis. And they say, your disciples transgress that teaching. They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, I was joking about the hand washing because they're not talking about just washing your hands before you eat dinner. They're talking about ceremonial hand washing. So the, if you were a rabbi of the day, which Jesus was considered a rabbi, you were also responsible for the behavior of your disciples because you taught them and you were their example. So the Pharisees are basically saying, what they're doing reflects poorly on you and tells us you don't care about what we care about. You don't care about, you know, the, uh, the tradition of the elders. In Mark 7, 3 and 4, we'll try to put it up on the screen for you here. This is a parallel account. Mark says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash a form of baptizo, where we get the idea of baptizing, their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, Mark 7, 3 and 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And so they had, they had this teaching in the Mishnah, 35 pages devoted to how you wash pots and copper vessels and cups and daily implements. 35 pages worth. And they were very, very concerned about this. And something that you have to see kind of underneath this is that Jesus' ministry has put him in touch with all kinds of folk that they think are, what? Unclean. He has touched lepers. He's interacted with uh, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He's uh, touched a coffin he was in the room where a little girl was dead and he raised her and apparently touched her. He's touched people left and right, crossed over barriers. The Jews used to not walk through Samaria because they thought if you walk through a Gentile area, you would pick up the, the defilement of that area. So they would walk around. Jesus went to Samaria to speak to the Samaritan woman. And I could go on and on and on. And you could see that in their mind, Jesus has been defiled over and over and over again by touching, reaching out, healing, crossing boundaries that they considered off limits. So maybe that's underneath the question. You, you don't have any respect for ritual cleanliness. The Mishnah, a compilation of Jewish oral laws made at the end of the second century, had 186 pages devoted to cleannesses much concerned with ritual washing. And originally, the biblical command to wash in a ritual ceremonial way was given to the priests. If you're interested, Exodus 30, verse 19, chapter 40, verse 12. Though this was the only, priest, only a priestly requirement, reading from one commentator, all pious Jews began to do it about 200 years before Christ. By the time of Christ, this became a firmly entrenched requirement for all who wanted to be uh, considered clean. The rabbi said this was a wall-building protection around the law of God, but often their traditions contradicted God's word. In fact, uh, the traditions even affirmed that, quoting, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law, close quote. And they had elevated their tradition to such a place that now it supplanted the word of God or was enthroned above the word of God. So now it was whatever they said that was the law. 
and this is what typically happens in cultic movements, the leader becomes the authority because he is allegedly hearing directly from God or he's a Messiah-like figure or whatever it may be. And that is done for one reason, control, power, prosperity, you name it. And so this was all about ceremonial washing. This is from Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And just listen to it and then we'll move on. It says, the minimum amount of water to be used uh, when you did this ceremonial hand washing was uh, a quarter of a log, enough to fill one and a half eggshells. The water was first poured on both hands, held with the fingertips pointed upward, and it must run down the arm as far as the wrist and drop off from the wrist. For the water was now itself unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And it ran down the fingers, uh, and if it ran down the fingers again, it would render them unclean. The process was repeated with the hands held in a downward direction, the fingers pointing down. And finally, each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with a fist from either. A strict Jew would do this before every meal and between every course in every meal. Dessert's coming. Hold on. Hold on. I want to eat that cream puff. <laughs> right? Now, I'm not trying to mock because I know that there's people who are serious about doing this, but that's what they did. And they did it over and over and over again. So they, they pull up in their investigative car and they look at the disciples and there they are. <laughs> they didn't do the ceremonial washing. Hey, hey. You're responsible for them, Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to them three, here's Jesus' response. Verses three through nine. And why do you yourselves transgress? The same word in, as in verse two. They, they say, you transgress the elders. Jesus says, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So Jesus answers a question with a question. <laughs> and that's a bit debating tactic. That's not a bad idea, right? Because Jesus is getting to the real issue here. The ones that are actually transgressing what's most important is not my disciples. It's you. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when somebody is very accusatory in their criticism of others, they're usually doing the same thing? So some years back, we have a, a family in the congregation. I won't use any names right now, but there was a cultic group that was trying to pluck people from Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta. They, this was their approach. They would come to a, a college Bible student and say, you probably are not saved because you haven't really mourned over your sin. They would use some Old Testament passages out of context without the, the new covenant. And they would accuse these college students of not being saved, get them to question their salvation and say, if you're gonna be saved, you have to really mourn over your sin. You're gonna mourn over it. And do stuff like that. Have you ever seen preachers where it seems like they haven't smiled since the time they were two? <laughs> Everything they preach is so serious. We're gonna be serious about our... Okay, dude, but lighten up a little bit. I mean, come on, crack a smile. So they would go, they would get these college students to question their salvation, and then they get them to uh, travel over to Texas to a compound where everybody had these same beliefs in common, and we all dress like Quakers and <laughs> whatever else they did. I mean, they had a way of life, and it's still out there. So there was a conference call between family members who essentially got cut off from this couple because now your family members are bad for your walk. And they did a video conference call after a long time of not talking. And the young man on the other end who's, who had embraced this legalistic view, what he did was, the first thing he pointed out in the conversation was a t-shirt that a family member had on. He said, hey, why are you wearing that t-shirt? The t-shirt happened to be a Christian rock band. At the same time that he was accusing the man, of, he said, do you know what they stand for? What are they really about? Why are you wearing that T-shirt? He was wearing a North, uh, North Face T-shirt. 
And the response was, well, why are you wearing that t-shirt? And do you know what that's all about? You know what that company's all about? I'm not commenting on the company. I'm just saying this was the dialogue. And the response was, well, someone gave me this t-shirt. And the response from the family member on the other end was, well, someone gave me this t-shirt. Do you see what legalism does? Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you something. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you something. It was given to me. It's not mine. It's in your... <laughs> what are we doing here? You have a cult member come to your door. You want to reach them. They want to talk about whether you should salute the flag, serve in the military, celebrate birthdays, celebrate Christmas. It's like, wait a minute. Let's talk about who God is and how you get saved. Amen? Legalism gets into this nitpicky thing about this or that. Here's what Jesus says. For God said, Jesus believes the law comes from God. Here's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. You might want to read that to your kids later. <laughs> Exodus 21, 17. No, we're not still practicing that. Just thought you might need a little levity. Anyway. But you say, God said, but you say five. Whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. They used something that Mark tells us was a Corban vow, C-O-R-B-A-N. Corban in Hebrew means gift or something given. So here's what they would do. This is called sanctified selfishness under a religious cloak. Mom or dad, you're getting older. You need help with your medical expenses or on the farm or whatever. I would have helped you and I had this money set aside, but I vowed that it was given to God. Corbin, over my 401k. Corbin, Rabbi, can you bless my... And so now mom and dad need help and honoring your father and mother is not just about your language. It's about what you do. They need help when they get older. Amen. I hope my kids are listening. And, <laughs> and lawn needs to be mowed, stuff like that. Anyway, so, so if your rabbi get, uh, kind of sanctified the vow, now mom and dad need help, but you gave that money to God. Oh, it sounds very pious, doesn't it? And apparently the Corbin vow was upon your death. So, you know, the money was sitting there. Now, here's the cool thing, get this, about the Corbin vow. Apparently, if mom and dad passed on, you could release yourself from the Corbin vow by saying, Corbin, again over your money. Corbin, that's Ali Ali Oxen free. Mine, mine, now it's mine. And all you had to do is get your rabbi to just kind of bless it. And now you had the money to spend it on yourself. Tell me, who's keeping the law here? And whose law is it really about? Jesus, uh, in Luke 16, it says that the scribes and Pharisees were lovers of money, not lovers of God. The essence of the law is to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. They were breaking the law. 1 Timothy 5, I think it's verse 18, Paul says, if one does not take care of his own, He's worse than an unbeliever. If, if you are a believer and you can't love people tangibly and practically and you hide behind vows that you made, that's sad. Let me give you a, a story from the past. So some years ago, a lady comes to our fellowship. She came out of a word, faith, prosperity church, name it and claim it kind of thing, all focused on money and that kind of stuff. So she comes to Living Truth. She had heard about our church. I happened to be teaching through the book of Hebrews at that time and giving a biblical definition of what faith is. And faith is not a force. It's not a power in and of itself. Faith is object-oriented. So I tried to give a biblical definition of faith. Yes, we believe God. He honors faith. But we don't have faith in our faith. We don't use faith to create reality or build our little kingdom. So she was getting it. And she stayed for several months. And she met with me, told me the story that this church in Corona, which I'm not even sure if it's still around, a prosperity church, had gotten her to sign over a piece of real estate to them through manipulative means. 
And they told her that she was going to be blessed for it. Oh, someone was getting blessed, but it wasn't her. So the family, her children heard about it, and they called the church and confronted the church. And a lawsuit ensued. And I was trying to just tell her, look, this is unbiblical. If this is happening, this is not of God. So get this. She had been there for a while. They bought her a car to woo her back to their fellowship so that they could continue to manipulate the situation for the land. And it was sad because they had their claws so much in her that she got wooed back, and I don't know what happened to her. This is what happens. People under religious cloaks make promises or say, oh, you'll be blessed if you do this. And it's usually about what you give to them, right? It's sanctified selfishness. That's what Jesus is confronting. That's why Jesus is going to give strong words after he says, you've, in, you've invalidated, nullified the word of God for the sake of your tradition by breaking the fifth commandment. That's verse six. He says, politically correct Jesus, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Can you see what he's addressing now? This is why he's so strong in his words. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You could render this, teaching people to obey merely human rules, namely their rules. You actors and actresses, he might say. Uh, Isaiah prophesied to the people of his time, but this applies directly to you. You honor God with your mouth, but your heart is as far away as it can be. Now let's flip it around for a second because we don't want to just sit on the negative. Let's flip it around to the positive. If being as far away from God is false worship, then what is true worship? Get as close as you can. Get as close to his heart as you can. What a great goal in the year ahead, amen? Doesn't it just simplify things? Just get to know him better. Get to know his heart better. I tell you, that's what this is all about. Don't let people take you captive through man-made philosophy or so-called man-made worship. Worship the Lord. Now, I want you to see this prophecy in its original setting because it, it has a lot to say to us. Let's move to uh, Isaiah 29. If you're not up for navigating it, we'll put it up on the screen. But I want you to see it, Isaiah. It's, it's past the Psalms, 29. Here's the original prophecy. It's written about 700 years before Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. Here's what it says. We're picking up in verse 9 of Isaiah 29. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. 29.9 of Isaiah. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. The nation is being addressed, namely its religious leaders. For the Lord, 29.10, has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Those who are supposed to be in touch with God are not. And the entire vision shall be to you like words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he'll say, I cannot, it's sealed. That's his excuse. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. He's got an excuse as well. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they notice remove their hearts far from me. Their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote or taught by man. Therefore, in light of this, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, like, hey, I'll use this vow to keep all the money for myself and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter, <coughs> excuse me, the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me or 
What is formed, say to him who formed it. He has no understanding. We can do whatever we want. We can hide behind the cloak of our position, our business card, our standing, our authority, our Mishnah, whatever. And Jesus says, I see you. I see what you're doing to the people. And I see your motivation. Back to Matthew, we'll move quickly. Your worship, in quotes, is vain. It's empty because it's about you. Many of the movements, uh, even liberal Christianity and now what's called progressive Christianity, strip them back. You'll find what they're all about. They're all about making a God that I create in my own image so I can worship it for my own benefit. Nothing new under the sun. Verses 10 through 20, Jesus' teaching will move rapidly. So what did Jesus teach to bring understanding. After he called the multitude to him, he wanted the wider group to hear this. He said to them, hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Mark 7, 15, 16, parallel account. There's nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the thing which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the man If any man has an ear to hear or has ears to hear, let him hear. Over the holidays, I ate a lot of things. They included many forms of Christmas cookies and even a sanctified cream puff. And all God's people said, yeah! And as I was eating it, I was thinking, this is probably not good for my fit physique I'm trying to accomplish in 2024. Don't laugh at that. But, um, but I ate it, and I will tell you, after eating it, I wasn't any closer to God or any farther away. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we eat it or the, the better if we don't. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Some people want to be vegetarians. God bless you. I hope that you can make it through the service without falling asleep. Some of you, (laughs) sorry, some of you eat a double-double five times a week. God bless you. It won't make you any closer to God or any farther away. What you eat goes into your tummy and through your system and is eliminated, and that is that. Now, should you be wise about your diet? Yes. Should you exercise? Yes. But should you live in such a way that thinking that only if you're a vegetarian are you spiritual? No. Peter's up on the rooftop. He's going to get a vision to go to uh, Joppa and visit the house of Cornelius. A sheet comes down. A voice from heaven says, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. What does Peter say? Oh, no, Lord. There's things on that sheet that are not kosher. Not kosher, Lord. You don't tell the Lord not kosher. He knows what's kosher. See, when your spirituality gets above heaven's spirituality, you might want to revisit your heart. Well, I know what the Bible says, but (laughs) you got to wear this or you ain't sanctified. Really? Sorry for that. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. I appreciate the laughter. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know or don't you realize that the Pharisees were offended when, you, when they heard this statement? You offended the big guns from Jerusalem. <laughs> Think Jesus cares? He answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant, they're not of me, they're not rooted and grounded in me, shall be rooted up. They're tares in the wheat field. You can go back and revisit uh, Matthew 13. They're not planted by my father, but by the enemy. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. They're like the blind, leading the blind. You never want to have God say of you, leave them alone, I'm done with them. Oh God, please never let that happen to any of us. Let them alone. They have no interest in what I'm saying. They know who I am. We'll we'll learn later in Matthew. They know who he is. Deep in their hearts, they know he's got to be the Messiah. No one can do what he does. Preach like he preaches. Raise the dead if he's not God in human flesh. Why do they ask about hand washing? 
when they have evidence encircling them? Why didn't they interview someone who had just been healed in Gennesaret? Why didn't they ask some questions about who this man really is? Oh, no, no, no. We're going to talk about the ceremony. It revealed their hearts. And Peter said, Lord, explain the parable to us. Here a parable is in a little different nuance. It's more like the wisdom of the book of Proverbs or like a pithy statement that captures the truth. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? You're the guys that are getting the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, 11. Do you not understand, don't you realize, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's eliminated? Mark's version of this says, are you so lacking in understanding Mark 7, 18 and 19? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark 7, 18 and 19. But the, thing that, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man. For out of the heart, Jesus has already uh, talked about the fifth commandment, honor your mom and dad. Now, commandments, at least uh, six through nine are here. What comes out of the heart? Evil thoughts, murders, that's the sixth commandment. Adultery, seventh commandment. Fornications, thefts, that's the stealing commandment. I think that's the eighth. False witness, that's one of the commandments. Slander, even uh, the tenth commandment may be here and as well of coveting. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. So maybe you grew up in a system where you ate something on the wrong day of the week and you're like, oh no, what have I done? It doesn't defile you. Nothing can defile the one who is in Christ because we have what? The righteousness of Christ. Now, this is not a carte blanche thing that you can do whatever you want. Don't get me wrong here. There are things that profit and things that don't. And you gotta be wise about your living. But in terms of your position before God, there's no food, nothing that you would put into your system. If you wanna, if you work on Sundays and you worship on Wednesday nights until your employer changes it, God bless you. I don't think that you're sinning against God because you're not here on Sundays although you're bordering on sin. I'm kidding, you're not. <laughs> Just kidding. I think you should be here on Wednesdays and Sundays, actually, but you know, I'll let you visit that. All right, and with that, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper as we end today. Um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're invited to his table. If you've not trusted him for your salvation, this would be a wonderful time to trust him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He's the only one who can make you clean. Amen? Nothing but the blood. He's the only one who can give you a new heart. He's the only one who can give you a new beginning. He's the only one who can put you in right standing with God. We've all sinned. We all have fallen short of his glory. He saves. That's why he came. To make us clean before God. To make us right in the sight of God. What do you have to do to know him? You have to repent and trust him. I look out at you guys. The room is filled with many, many Christians, but I'm not gonna make an assumption that everybody understands this. The only way to be saved is to be in Jesus Christ, to trust him. And once you do, you're born again, your sins are forgiven, and you'll start a journey as a new creation in Christ Jesus, amen? He's got plenty to teach us after that. But we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves. Now, the ushers are going to start bringing the elements of communion around. If you're a believer, you're invited to take. Uh, why don't you just hold them, and we'll take them together. As the ushers are handing out the elements, I'm going to read a passage in Jeremiah 17. I want to show you the context of this passage, because some of you have heard Jeremiah 17, 9. But I want to show you just the fuller, fuller context. So if you can... Uh, look up at the screen. I, I've got it, Roger. Thank you. And let's take a look at Jeremiah 17. This is 5 through 14. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes 
flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man, by contrast, who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is deceitful, uh, more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that hatched eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Some scholars believe when Jesus wrote on the ground, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, he may have been referencing this actual verse. Those who were trying to condemn her and Jesus may have been uh, writing this down or alluding to Jeremiah 17. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Notice the last verse. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For thou art my praise. The answer to our dilemma is a new heart that's what's promised in the new covenant. The Lord says, I'll put my spirit in you and we will begin to have the, um, the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life, to walk in God's ways. Lord, as we prepare to take the elements of communion, David said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. That was the man after God's own heart. Lord, we want to have a heart like our king. And our king came down to save us. And this new covenant spoken of in Ezekiel and other places is celebrated on the night when Jesus uh, was betrayed and when he had took, taken the bread and set it apart for this sacred moment for us to remember. Lord, as we remember what you've done for us, we give you thanks Thank you for the hope of the new covenant. Thank you for the blessing of the Holy Spirit living on our lives. Thank you for a year ahead filled with opportunity to get a little closer to our King.